0: All right, why don't you turn to Micah chapter 5, please. Micah chapter 5 to 7 to 9. There are three um, sermons in the book of Micah indicated by the phrase here and here now. Chapter 1 verse 2, chapter 3 verse 1, chapter 6 verse 1. The subject matter also helps us to see the flow and the progression of the book. Chapter 1 through 3, you have um, the present judgment. Chapter 4 and 5, you have the future blessing, which basically deals with the millennial kingdom, with some few exceptions. In chapters 6 and 7, with the present repentance. God is always trying to get people to repent. That's why he sent the prophets. The prophets were raised up because the priesthood, the kings, the leaders, the people have become so corrupt, he sent the prophets to turn the nation, and so we are in the second chapter of the future blessing here in chapter five. In chapter five, verse one through the first portion of five, we have the Messiah in relationship to Israel. In verse one of chapter five says, "Now gather yourselves with us in the troops, in troops, O daughter of the truth. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod." On his cheek. Now, this first verse is really the last verse of chapter 4. That's the better division. That's the way it's in the Hebrew text because he's still dealing with the city of Jerusalem that he's been talking about. Again, chapter division came many years afterwards so we can facilitate finding verses. Uh, The exhortation is to defend herself against the siege and to come together as troops, and the word troop is always used for a military sense. In the scriptures, and the city is personified by the phrase "daughter of troops," depicting Jerusalem as a warlike city. But this time, her her warlikeness is really against God and against the people of God, as he she has become so corrupt. And, um, and the judgment was directly from God. Notice uh, the siege set against us is God who is fighting against His own people. Zedekiah received the letter, if you remember, from the Assyrian officers that were mocking God outside the city walls. And uh, Hezekiah received the letter, spread it before the Lord in the temple. Isaiah was sent to him and told him that not one soldier of the Assyrian camp would come in, not an arrow would be shot. And God sent an angel that night to kill 250,000 front-light Assyrian troops in 2 Kings chapter 19. And God was sued. This is Judah. This is Jerusalem. Now, Syria's going to take the northern kingdom, okay? But they came to intimidate the south. But it was going to be a hundred and some years till Babylon would take Judah, the southern kingdom. Um, the fact that they would strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek is just uh, an insult to the reigning king. And without that, it was Hezekiah during that time. And then, of course, uh, ultimately, uh, when uh, Babylon took um, Judah, certainly King Hezekiah was humbled by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the ultimate fulfillment, Second Kings twenty four, fifteen and twenty five seventeen. Um, Jesus was struck often, if you remember, in the Gospels at his interrogation and his trial, Matthew twenty six sixty seven, and twenty seven thirty, and also John nineteen three. They buffered him, they hit him. Who struck you? Tell us if you're Messiah. And and they uh, they just um, treated him very very bad. Here in verse two. Um, he says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. And so the birth of the Messiah, the city of Bethlehem, the house of bread here, prophesied um, the place of fruitfulness to an extent, Ephrathah, and um, the original home of David uh, is recorded for us in First Samuel seventeen twelve. Matthew quotes the prophecy of the birth of Jesus in Matthew 2, 4 through 6. In fact, Joseph and Mary came down to Nazareth by way of the decree of Caesar, Luke 2, 1 through 7 tells us. And that's how the Lord worked it all out so that the prophecy would be fulfilled. And in fact, when the Magi came seeking a king... Um, the new king of the Jews, Herod, asked the priests and the scribes where he would be born. And they quoted Micah 5.2. And so, again, um, the scriptures are so well attested. Not only prophetic looking forward, but at the time that it came to fulfill. The key phrase in Matthew is, this was done in fulfillment of. Matthew writes to the Jew. Matthew 25.24 that's tribulation, great tribulation for the Jew. The church is nowhere in there. The, church, the Jew goes through the tribulation in preparation for a Messiah. The church is removed prior to the tribulation. John 14, 1-3. 1 Thessalonians 1, 13-18. Key phrase, 16 and 17 of that chapter. Chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 10. They repented from their sins, from their idols, waiting for Jesus to return from heaven... To uh, deliver them from the wrath to come. The wrath to come is the seven years of tribulation. So there's a great attack against the rapture today by the within the church. It's absolutely unfounded. The fact that they're saying it's a recent doctrine is junk. That the church didn't teach it for hundreds of years. Who cares? I'm embarrassed by the church history. My the question is, is it taught in the scriptures that Jesus teach it, Did Paul teach it? Yes, that's where we get doctrine. Not from church history, ladies and gentlemen. It's corrupt to the bone, all right? And so here you have the prophecy of his birth, the place, the contrast between the incredible notary of the uh, city of, of Jerusalem, the insignificance of the city of Bethlehem, Ephrata, a uh, great contrast. Um, his, uh, he comes in um, humility, in a humble state. Um, Messiah, um, born was to be the ruler, notice, of Israel. His um, birth speaks of his humanity. Uh, he was 100% man, equally as being 100% God. Matthew picks this up in Matthew one twenty three, quoting Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall bear his son, you call his name, Emmanuel, Isaiah 9, 6, uh, uh, the prince of peace, a child is born, a son is given, a child of humanity, a son is given, the deity. Both combined, 100% of each. And um, um, the aspect would be the timely coming in Genesis 49:10 when Shiloh would come. During the time when the authority was removed from Israel, they had to go to Pilate to get the authority to put Jesus to death because the death penalty had been removed from them. Uh, the, the scriptures just fit perfectly, and he would come forth to me, the Father, the One of Israel. And so the prophecy here is very, very clear of Jesus Christ. He said, "Before Abraham was, I am." In John eight fifty eight, constantly they they confronted Jesus because he made God out to be his Father, and yet he says, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. I came." Um, to bring you to the Father. And just over and over again, John does a masterful job in that. He emptied himself of his glory, never of his deity. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 makes that very, very, very clear. And so in verse 3, he says, Therefore he shall um, give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel and he shall stand and feed the flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his name of the Lord his God and they shall abide for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and so verse 3 and 4 here and 3 the rejection of Israel by God until the 70th week of Daniel 69 weeks have been fulfilled as you know Daniel 9 24 to 26, Daniel 9:27, the 70th week. The north would go in captivity to Assyria in 722. The south would go into captivity in 586 after the third siege. And the Jews rejected Jesus constantly, so he declared judgment over them as they rejected him there as he preached out of Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, and the synagogue of Nazareth in Luke 4. 18-21, in this day in your hearing these scriptures are fulfilled, he closed the book right before the second coming, he only quoted from the second coming, and he rolled up the scroll, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, if you would have known this thy day, the things that were prepared for you, now they're hidden from your eyes, you shall not see me henceforth you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus said that in Matthew 23, 37-39, in Luke 19, 41 down to 44, he was brokenhearted, he was sent to his own, his own received them not, and yet he said, There won't there comes one in his own name, him, you will receive the Antichrist. Wow. Amazing. Notice in verse four, the celebration of the reigning Messiah with Israel in the millennium. Jesus will be faithful to his promises. As a shepherd, he will feed, tend, and protect them. Jesus will be seen in his glorious majesty to his name. Yahweh is salvation. In fact, Jeremiah 23, 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness, the Lord to sit canoe during the millennial kingdom. Jesus will not be separated from them anymore. They shall abide with him, reigning supremely on the earth, as verse 4 tells us here. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. As you look at the beginning of verse 5, the first portion, that goes with verse 4 there. He says, "And, and this one shall be peace, the Prince of Peace. All the desire, all the prayer for peace is not going to bring about peace until the Prince of Peace comes, Jesus Christ. Man is constantly um, destructive. He always wants a bigger piece of the pine. There's always wars. If you look to the the contrast of the number of years of peace in man's existence to the number of years of war, uh, it's an embarrassing record altogether. And so... Here from the second part of 5, down the verse 6, we see the future peace of, of, of Zion. He says, when the Assyrians comes into our land. So again, he's entered the millennial aspect here now. He says, and when um, he treads in our palaces, then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight um, princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at his entrance. Thus, he shall deliver us from the Assyrians when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Now, the reference to Assyria is to the latter days. It goes back to chapter 4, verse 1. First... Notice the context is to establish the kingdom age. So that's the future when Assyria, the area of Iraq, would be tread in their palaces. Okay, so it's not talking about the day of Micah. He goes into the future of the millennial kingdom, right before the second coming, the great tribulation to set up the kingdom. Um, Though Assyria did um, do this to Israel and took them captive in 722, the northern kingdom, They never entered Jerusalem, as I pointed out already, so it cannot even refer to a short-term fulfillment. Assyria never entered the gates or the walls of Judah. So this is looking into the future, the restoration. Secondly, notice the response will be to um, raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. This has to refer to the long-term fulfillment of the Great Tribulation against the Antichrist or the Battle of Armageddon. Not exactly what it means. Some have interpreted that these are leaders of the nation of Israel that have been in existence now since 1948, short-term fulfillment. I'm not positive about that. There's just not enough information. Uh, But certainly the context is millennium, so I would rather keep it to that. And... um, And it's great tribulation, so I would keep it to that context. That makes better sense to interpret it there. That's when it's going to happen. The third reason is that the latter days is um, they defeat Assyria. Notice in verse 6, they shall waste away with the sword of the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at the entrance. Uh, The northern kingdom, again, never defeated Assyria, nor did Judah. The kingdom of Babel, Nimrod, is The kingdom that we're talking about here started back in Genesis 10, 9 through 11. Here you have it again for the last days. Revelation 17 and 18, you have commercial Babylon, religious Babylon. That will be comprised of the kingdom of the Antichrist, which God will judge. The fourth reason is God is the one delivering them. Notice that in verse 6 at the end. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrians. When he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders, this could have a short-term fulfillment in the prophecy of Hezekiah by Isaiah that the angel goes out to kill 185,000. Because it says within our borders, they were outside the wall. So it could be short-term. But the long-term is the latter days that will bring in the kingdom age. This is the context. So once again, you try to stick to the context so that you don't interpret it outside of that. Otherwise, it becomes real subjective. Verse 7 through 9, you have the future vindication of Zion. He says, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord shall shower on the grass that tarry for no man nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of a Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he passes through, both tread down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Um, your hand shall be lifted against our adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And so, here in verse 7, at the time. The remnant of Jacob, notice that, will be reigning and being a blessing to those on the earth. Verse 7. Do you see it clearly? They're the blessing. This is a simile, as I said this morning, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. A simile is always introduced by the word like or as. It's in comparison. The blessing comes through the Jews, but the source is God, Yahweh. Jesus Christ, that tarry for no man nor way for the sons of men. In other words, it's not from human origin, but from the Lord Jesus Christ. God will use 144,000 Jews to preach the gospel, even through the great tribulation. They will be removed from the earth. There will be great revival. God will do an incredible work in preparation for this millennial kingdom for the remnant and all that God has. At that time, the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, ruling supremely. Verse 8 and 9 are very clear on this. In full authority, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, who if he passes through with absolute power, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. So the kingdoms for Israel, no one else, an earthly kingdom. We, the church, are looking for a heavenly spiritual kingdom. We will be ruling and reigning with Christ. Look at 9. At that time, no nation will threaten or defeat Israel. Your hands shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. They've been under threat from the day they Declared their third independence in 1948. And um, this will not stop until the Messiah returns. In verse 10 down to 15, you have the the future purification of Zion. God will purify his people in preparation of his coming. Verse 10 says it shall be in that day. And there's the key. In that day, the millennial kingdom, says the Lord Yahweh, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off and your sacred pillars from your midst. And you shall um, no more worship the work of your hands. I will Pluck your wooden images from your midst. Thus, I will destroy your cities and I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. So here, 10 through 15 in verse 10. Notice the Lord, Yahweh, will purify the land and all the false dependency for victory in preparation for his coming. From 10 down to 14. The context is still the millennium. In that day, the latter days, spoken about in chapter 4, verse 1, verse 6, and in chapter 7, verse 2. Latter days, that day. Same scenario. Seven times the phrase, I will, is repeated, followed by the cut off, thrown down, destroy, and execute. This is God's doing. This is the Lord. Jesus doing all this to establish the kingdom. No one else, I will, I will, I will. Jesus will destroy military confidence and self-dependency on horses and chariots. Some trust in, in, in horses, some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20 says. The king was warned in, in Deuteronomy 17:16, not to multiply horses or chariots. Solomon broke that, and he made a business of it, okay? God said, "Don't trust in them." Jesus will do away with their fortified cities and strongholds of protection. In verse eleven, Jesus will do away with their occultic practices. Verse twelve, sorceries means witchcraft. Susane means practice conjurers, observer of times, spiritists, enchanters, diviners, fortune tellers. Exodus twenty two eighteen, Leviticus nineteen twenty six, Deuteronomy eighteen ten. Uh, Isaiah 2 6, Jeremiah 27 9, and so many others. God is very serious about the occult. Many people are into the occult today. The New Age movement has bled into the church. The merchant church has embraced a lot of this. The contemplative prayer deals with spiritism as they tap into demons. The old practice of the monastery, desert church fathers, the Catholic church practices of the east of meditation of walking labyrinths all this stuff this is the practice of many emergent churches college universities quote quote christian it's happening today and god is very serious you get power for one or the other god or satan no one else okay and there's many ways which this deception comes in look at verse 13 jesus will remove all their false worship of idols, carved images, physical likeness of their gods, sacred pillars, memorial altars, stalks and stumps of trees in their groves, where they put to practice the sexual rites of their deities. They were fertility cults. Asherah was the goddess of fertility, worshipped in fertility sexual rites, sacred prostitution. The Asherah polls, First Kings 16, 29 through 33, many other portions. Today we have the same thing through pornography, no different. It's the same religion, no different. And people see nothing wrong with it. And it's contaminated our land. Our Supreme Court justices are so senile, they can't distinguish between a dirty picture and pornography. It's amazing to me. Notice in verse 13, all the work of their hands will no longer be worshiped. When? This is during the millennial kingdom. Baal, Molech, Camush, Milcom. 1 Kings eleven thirty three. These are all the gods of the land. God said when you come in, do not even look at how they worship. Do not even inquire. He says when you go through the land, you kill everybody. As you look, at the radical terrorists of Islam, and you realize the hatred that they indoctrinate their children with, you understand why God said, when you go in the land, you kill women and children and everything. Because they are so corrupted, so filled with corruption and hatred, that all they will do is infect whoever walks in. If you're in the front yard and your child is there, he's two-year-old, and a little puppy comes up and starts playing with your boy, you're not going to mind it. It's going to be kind of cute. But if you see a a dog with rabies foaming at the mouth approaching your son, I'm going to kill that dog. I'm not going to say, oh, that poor little puppy. You understand why God said that. And they made covenants. And, and they, they compromised with the people of the land. And what happened? They were contaminated. They compromised. The land spewed them out. They didn't believe God. Knew what he was saying. <laughs> they believed that they knew better than God. Wow. Wow. Jesus will pull up their wooden images from the mist and destroy their cities, verse 14 says. And in 15, Jesus executes vengeance in righteous anger and fury on the nations that have not obeyed. Not the church, the nations. When you come to chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, you have the supreme appeal of God. Um, with Israel here verse 1 and 2 the court of God is called into session he says uh, hear now what the Lord says arise plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice hear O you mountains, the Lord's complain and you strong foundations of the earth for the Lord has a complaint against his people and he will contend with Israel God enters into the lawsuit and Micah is his attorney This is the third message of the book indicated by the word here. The leaders and prophets have been already confronted in chapter 4, verse 1. The entire world has been confronted in chapter 1, verse 2. Now the nation is confronted in chapter 6, verse 1. God calls for the nation to make a defense by pleading their case. In other words... Literally, declare your complaint against me, God. This is repeated in different passages. Deuteronomy 32.1, Isaiah 1, two; Jeremiah 22.29. Where God brings a divine courtroom. And he's the, not only the, the judge, but he's the prosecuting attorney. Sometimes it's through the prophet calling man to charge him with these things. Micah notice as God's attorney calls on the mountains to hear Yahweh's declaration of his complaint against the people in order to contend with Israel. So the mountains, the hills are the witnesses of God because the people don't even hear. They don't even listen. But creation gives witness to God. He calls nature. Now here Israel includes both the north and the southern kingdom. And the word contend means to reprove, to show to be right. Show me the evidence that you're right. Show me that I'm wrong. In verse 3, he says, O my people, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. So here, Um, The defense of God is to ask charges against him. What is it that I have done? Where and how have I failed you? In what way have I exhausted your patience? Declare it to me. Testify against me. Jeremiah 2, 5 and 8. We have the similar stuff. As he charges the people. Verse 4 and 5. You have the evidence of all um, God had done for them. On the contrary now he says... Uh, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what Balak, uh, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him And Acacia, from Acacia grows to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord." And so he had redeemed them from Egypt, the house of bondage, for 430 years, Exodus 3.13. He gave them leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, to lead, to guide them, to direct them. He protected them against the king Balak and Balaam as he hired them in Numbers 22 through 24 to come and curse the children of Israel, but he could not because God had blessed them. He attempted it three times, and Balak got so mad at him. Now, you know the whole story. When they got there, he turned them down. Then he, King Balak sent more money and better. And then God says, only go if they come for you. But Balaam took off before they even came. And, and God was going to strike him dead through the angel. And the, Balaam's donkey went off to the side. He started beating his donkey, and, and the donkey spoke to him. He said, hey, listen, I'm the, I'm the donkey. You've known me from my little. I've ever done anything like this. He said, if I had a sword, I'd kill you. He was so mad. He was so out of his mind. He was so caught up by the covetousness of money that he didn't even realize he's talking to a jackass. Yet that animal saw the angel of the Lord and he just went down and all up against the wall. I ain't going nowhere. Interesting. Interesting. In verse 6 and 7, the people respond to God, seeking to justify and defend themselves. Listen carefully. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord? And how, and bow myself before the high God, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn?" For my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. Now, some interpret this to be the words of Micah playing the advocate, but the context doesn't fit. The people here responded disrespectfully regarding their sacrifice and offerings. Look at verse 6. They were in effect saying, what else does God want from me since they were going through the ritual? Get off my back. Whoa. It shows that ritual without righteousness is futile and God is not pleased with works void of faith, right? James picks this up. Some people just say, well, I go to church. Well, I give money. I'm involved. What does that mean? Are you walking with God? Are you in love with God? Are you growing in your life in the Lord? Are you connected to him? Verse 7, the people became arrogant in their words. They were saying, does God want more in number and something that costs us the most? Even our firstborn? For our sin? Now, that's not being a smart aleck. My kid talk like that, he wanna smack them. Because they're being disrespectful. The scripture says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it to you. You do not delight in burnt offerings, the sacrifice of God, or a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise, do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifice of righteousness. With burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then they shall offer bulls in your, on your altar. Psalm 51, 16 through 19. So it's that broken and contrite spirit and heart. Coming before the Lord. Doing what you do because you love him. That you're not being a hypocrite. You're not playing game. You're not thinking you're doing God a favor. The rebuke to the people comes by revealing what they already knew was the right answer. Look at verse 8. He says, He has shown you, o man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the key verse of the book. Got to reveal to them what was good, what God required them. The word good is pleasing and agreeable with God. How do I find out what's pleasing and agreeable with God? In the Word of God. Not in a devotional, not in a commentary, not in listening to K Wave or KBRT or whatever else in the Bible. You need to know the word of God. Three commands follow. To do justly. To make righteous judgments in daily life in their courts. Man is unjust and evil by nature. Second command, to love mercy. Hesed, covenant word meaning loving kindness. Man loves getting even and vengeance. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew twenty three thirty three to the Pharisees, the scribes. James one twenty seven two thirteen. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Third command: to walk humbly, lowly, and modest. Literally, to walk low with your God. Man is prideful. All a product of relationship. Not religion. Only Jesus kept all the law and fulfilled it. We can't do it. God sent forth the Son and the light of the sinful flesh and condemned sin in the flesh, Romans 8, 3-4 through says. The work of God is that we believe in him who he sent, John 6, 28-29. The two tables of the law are represented here. You have man's relationship to God, the vertical, and man's relationship to man, the horizontal. Jesus spoke in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-six 36, 34 of those tablets, which is the greatest commandment, the first and the second was I second do the first. The vertical and the horizontal. Relationship with God, relationship with man. Verse 9, down to 12, we have the evidence for the guilt of Judah. He says, the Lord's voice cries to the city wisdom shall see your name hear the rod who has appointed it are these yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked in the the short measure that is an abomination shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights for her rich men are full of violence and so God reveals their guilt with he will they will not go unpunished. In verse 9, In the Lord's voice cries in the city, God knows all things. He will miss no one who repents and those who will not repent. Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod who has appointed it. The rod is for correction, judgment. Isaiah ten five, 5. Assyria was the rod of my wrath. Proverbs. Speaks about persona as a woman in Proverbs chapter 1 through 9. Runs through the streets calling the simple. But they ignore her. And she says, one day I will call. You will call out to me. But it will be too late. God would expose those. Notice verse 10. Who became wealthy by corrupt and fraudulent weights and measures. This was in the law. God hates that. Leviticus 19, 35. Deuteronomy 25, 14. Proverbs 20, verse 10. And many others. God would expose those who profited from dishonest business practices. He would not count them pure. Their wicked scales and deceitful ways. In verse 11. Different ways to buy and sell. When I used to work for Pronto Market in the 60s and 70s. You know. The um, Department of Weight and Balances of the United States would send out, and every once in a while they would come in. They can come in anytime, time, and they would come in with their little weights, you know, and they would put them on your scales, your produce scales, your meat scales, and everything else, and they would put their certificate. If they were off, they would find you until you fixed them. I don't know if they do that anymore. This way there's a, there's a control scale way so people aren't ripped off, okay? They are certified scales of weights of the Department of Weight and Balances. And God says, I want honest weights. Of course, when you buy something, you buy, you have the light scales. And when you sell something, you have a heavy scale, right? Because it's where you profit on both ends. Okay? And so this is what he's talking about. Verse 12, God would expose their wicked character, the greedy, wealthy reason- Uh, resort to violence for her rich men are full of violence the nation of judah cannot be trusted seeking only to benefit themselves her inhabitants have spoken lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth wow the society was just decayed the corruption that permeated every level of society Verse 13, down to 16, you have the judgment of God revealed. In 13, the hand of God would punish Judah and Jerusalem. He says, Therefore, I also, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. Real simple. The word sick means to me weak and helpless. It's translated severe in Nehemiah. 319, make desolate because of your sins, the blessings and cursing. Whenever you look in these prophets, major or minor, always look up Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, those three chapters. The blessings and the cursings. God prepared them. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you do this, I'll get you. They're listed for us there. So whenever you're studying the major, minor prophets, you have to always remember Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Always. And you'll find your references. In verse 14, the hand of God would remove the abundance they knew, giving them up to their enemies. He says, you shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away. But shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. So there would be famine. But um, there would be no satisfaction. Hunger um, shall be in their midst. And all the stuff that God gave to them now was removed from them. As we look to our nation and we look at the abundance that we used to have and all the surplus... And we see our greediness, our dishonesty. We see our, 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 our thirst for entertainment and laziness. We are depleting everything. People who have worked hard, who have amassed wealth by hard work and, and, and whatever they have done. And they leave it to their children. Their children become lazy and entitled. And they just squander it and throw it all away. And that's what has happened to our nation. We're not the first. We're not the last if the Lord tarries. It's the history of man. Their attempts to secure some provision in their flight would fail. The sword would catch up with them. They would not enjoy any of their labor, but others would. You shall sow, but not reap. Verse 15. You shall uh, tread the olives but not anoint yourself with oil and make sweet wine, but not drink it. Consequences of their actions, the choices. Look at 16. The reason is due to their evil practices and sin. He says, for the statutes of Omri are kept all the works of Ahab's house are done and you walk in their councils that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, you shall hear the reproach of my people. They obeyed the evil dictates of Omri. The statues of Omri are kept. Omri was the father of Ahab who, um, or not the father of Ahab, but the father of. Of um, of um, Jezebel, and Ahab married her. Omri purchased the hill of Samaria in eight eighty five to forty one. First Kings sixteen gives us that record. They practiced all the evil of Ahab, all the works of Ahab's house, wicked counsels. Ahab again married Jezebel. They were two junkyard dogs. One is bad enough; two together run. Um, they introduced Baal worship to all the northern kingdom. First Kings sixteen thirty one, the daughter of um, Jezebel, Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel, there, the granddaughter of Omri. She killed all the seed royal, and except for uh, Joash, she was hidden in the temple. In Second Kings eight and in chapter eleven, until he was brought out. And you have this ongoing cycle of just evil and corruption and destruction that was brought on by the people themselves, their lifestyle. As you look to your friends, as you look to your own life, I don't know where God brought you from, but if you look and you see how much hurt we added to our own lives because how we lived, what we were doing. And yet we always wanted to blame somebody else, but it was my practices of drinking or drugs or sleeping around or whatever. I brought those problems on myself. That's the, that's the environment I, 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 I lived in. But we're always quick to blame somebody else. This has been going on for over 200 years. The judgment was coming. In chapter 7, verse 1 through 6, the prophet's lamentation over this whole sinful condition. We looked at it in depth this morning, the chapter. We'll just move through it in general commentary. Woe was me, for I am like those who gather summer fruit, like those who glean vintage graves. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. So in other words, he's using here a simile of the agriculture, which... People would harvest and leave the corner of the field for the poor. They would come and be able to glean and provide for themselves food. And he's using this as a parallel, a simile of of the righteous people. In verse 2, he makes that application. He's hungering for fellowship with godly men. There's none around. You You were expecting for at least a few, but it's not even there. It's not there at all. In verse 3, down to 6, the corruption of the entire society is given, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The princes ask for the gift, bribes. The judges seek a bribe, payment. And the great men, wealthy, powerful, utter his evil desire, so they scheme together so all these people help each other out to accomplish their evil goal their desires and everything else it has never changed in society it's the same thing those who have money those who know people they can get away with murder they can get away with corruption perversion and they're protected once in a while one of them will get busted but it's it's deception because you still have to give an account to God You still are going to die. You're still going to have to face Jesus Christ. Sin, Satan, self, the trinity of deception. Now notice verse 4. He says, the best of them is like a briar. Here's another simile, like or as a briar. Um, The most upright is sharper than a a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes, now shall be their perplexity. So in other words, they're likened unto briars and, and, and thorn hedges. In other words, they're just, they, they, they hurt people, they're worthless, they're, they're just dried wood and hard wood that just is good for fire, judgment. They're of no good to themselves or anybody else. And even as it says there, that uh, uh, the day of their watchmen, punishment is coming. They haven't heeded the prophets. The prophets are the watchmen. Ezekiel chapter 3, chapter 33. Paul says, I am innocent the blood of all men. I have not failed to give you the full counsel of God. Woe to the pastors and teachers who do not warn the people of God today from the pulpit of all the deception that's going on. Warn people against sin and again not walking with God and everything. That's what we're here to do. Not because we're better than one another, but we are here to encourage one another to, to warn others who would be compromising Knowing that they have to face Jesus Christ. And so, in, in verse 5 on down, um, it speaks of the, even the closest of community, of those who are your friends, your loved ones, wife, husband, and children. He says, Do not trust in a friend, do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from the one who lies in your bosom so you can't depend or trust. you got to watch what you say because they were so corrupt they would just stab them in the back. They would betray them. you got to be careful what you said to your wife, one who is so close that lays on your chest and your bosom at night. And yet you got to be careful what you say because you can't trust her. You look to our society today, there's such a breakdown within the marriages and within family and within men and women relationship. It's so treacherous, it's so self-seeking, so self-satisfying, so self-serving in every way that it's temporal. Women just disrespect themselves and they live with men. The prophet, God tells the prophet to the... To Israel and Hosea, at least least a prostitute charges money. You hired yourself off and you don't even charge. Wow. Women today just live with guys, right? A year or two. Then they move on to the next guy. Well, at least a prostitute gets some money out of it. So they're prostituting themselves out for a year or two or five or ten. But they feel comfortable in their skin, so to speak, right? Wow. Women have disrespected themselves. They're the ones that are the most radical in terms of morality and violence today. The men of America have been neutered. We even have terms for it, metrosexual. <laughs> They're not homosexuals. They just dress feminine. Interesting. We even make a whole vocabulary for it. Wow. Wow. Verse six: For son dishonors father, daughters rise up against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Verse six: Here, interestingly, Jesus quotes this in Matthew ten thirty-four to thirty-six and Luke twelve fifty-one through fifty-three to the response of those who preach the gospel and they accept the gospel, and then now their families turn on them. Some of you, perhaps, you know, you come out of radical cultural backgrounds, Catholicism or or cultures like Chinese or Filipino that that are Catholic-oriented, and then you come to the Lord, and man, there is just like an enemy against you, your own family, because you have betrayed the family. You have changed your religion. The early Christians in the first century were accused of being homewreckers, Jesus says, I have not come but to bring a sword, father against mother, mother against son, daughter, so on and so forth, because the gospel divides you either for Jesus or against Jesus. The only way you can truly love your father, mother, brother, and sister is if you first love Jesus. doesn't mean we're to hate them, but if they ostracize us and reject us, we continue to pray and love them. Very important, verse seven, therefore, I will look to the Lord, He's tired of looking all this society is depressing, discouraging. I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me, so He turns to God, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. So now he addresses the enemies that are are being used by God to bring them into captivity, Assyria, later Babylon. And he's going into the millennial kingdom forward when God will discipline and judge the whole world. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. So he commends himself to the Lord and the judgment that's coming, knowing that God is faithful to those who walk with him. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. So Micah the prophet entrusts himself to the coming judgment, to the discipline of God. I myself am guilty. I'm not innocent. I'm not just pointing the finger to all those I have failed. But I'm turning to God. I'm looking for him. I'm commending myself to him. And he's going to be faithful And he will be with me. Verse 10. The prayer continues. Then she who is my enemy will see and shame will cover her. Who says to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will trample down like mud in the streets. So God will judge her. God will judge Assyria. God will judge Babylon. But Micah's confidence is in the Lord. He would vindicate himself. Look at verse 11 through 13, the final restoration by God for the kingdom age. He says, in that day, there's that key again, your walls are to be built. In that day, the decree shall go forth and wide. In that day, they shall come to you from Assyria and fortify cities from the fortresses to the rivers, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. That's a millennial kingdom. The whole earth will come to Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. The worship center of the world. Everything. Yet the land shall be desolate. Verse 13. Because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. So God there in verse 13 is talking about the battle of Armageddon as God has judged the world and he's set up the uh, the judgment of the nations, Matthew 25, and those who pass the judgment, sheep from the goats, are allowed to go into the kingdom age. By this time, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven vials of judgment have been poured out on the earth. Vegetation, life, uh, sea life, most of the population of the earth is gone. Devastation. Read Revelation chapter 6 to. Uh, 9 to 18, horrible, horrible. Now notice verse 14 to 20, the prayer of Micah for his people. 14 says, shepherd your people with your staff. He intercedes here. The flock of your heritage who dwells solitarily in the woodlands, in the midst of Carmel, let them feed him, bash him, and Gilead. as in the days of old. He's talking about the northern Area of Haifa, around there, Carmel, and over to the, to the east, very lush property. This is the millennial kingdom. They're, they're at peace. No one's threatening them. They're in abundance. God is blessing them. Verse 15, as in the days when you can, came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. So the millennial kingdom will be known for the miraculous work of God as supernatural. Jesus is reigning on the earth. Israel has occupied the kingdom. All the promises of God now are fulfilled to them. We the church are reigning with Jesus Christ. Satan is bound for a thousand years. 14 through. um, In verse 15. He says. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I'm sorry. Verse 16. Now. Micah prays. Reveals the victory of God over the nations, as the nations shall see, and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their mouth over their their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. Humiliated, humble by God. God has defeated them. They shall kick, lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear, because of you and so men always think themselves great they look at themselves as powerful daniel 2 the image of nebuchadnezzar head of gold and a huge image and silver shoulders and arms and belly of brass and legs of iron and ten toes of iron and clay but then in chapter 7 he shows them how god sees the kingdom of the earth as animals (laughs) when you're not living for jesus christ you're living on the animal level I don't care if you're a man or a woman. You're living for yourself and whatever can gratify you and whatever works out. Notice verse 18 to 20, the prayer of Micah, praising God for his forgiveness, his loving kindness. Who is like unto God? Or who is a God like you? A play on words on the name of Micah also. The answer is no one. He's unique. Pardoning iniquity. And passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. So the context is the remnant. We're talking about the millennial kingdom here. Does this apply to us as Christians? Yes, in principle, because it's repeated through many different ways. He does not return his anger or retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. God would much rather forgive. God seeks to hear repentance that he might forgive and bless because he delights in mercy less than we deserve. He will again have compassion on us, the remnant of Israel, and will subdue our iniquities, forgiveness. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the ocean, verse 19 says, and so here again, the scriptures over and over again, "Come, let's reason together, your sins be red as crimson be white as snow." Isaiah 118. He will cast them behind his back. Isaiah 38:17. "As far as east is the west, Psalm 103,12. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, David prays about the joy of one who confesses and has his sins forgiven and the joy that's in his life and the refreshment that's there. But when there isn't confession and there's sin, there's a misery. There's a dullness. There's a deadness that goes on. Fellowship is broken. And so what a great promise. Bears in the deepest ocean, as I said this morning, he puts a sign there, no fishing. Seven miles deep is the deepest the Mariana Trench. And he puts a sign there, no fishing. Verse 20, you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. The faithfulness of God to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His promises according to the covenant. Genesis chapter twelve was verse one through three. Genesis thirteen, fifteen, Genesis seventeen, seventeen. Just on and on and on. Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, the patriarchs. The promises through Isaac, not Ishmael. Galatians makes that very, very clear in the New Testament. And so, what a way for Micah to finish this deplorable and discouraging and disintegrating society. He just can't take it, so he turns to God. You have to keep your eyes on the Lord, and so do I, in the decayed period of time that we are seeing our nation in and the world. We have no idea where things are going from one day to another. The stabling bars are removed from America and the world. I used to teach about the last days. Now we're in them. And everything is speeding up. And so I can't encourage you enough to stay in the word, to stay in prayer, to stay involved, be the church, and serve the Lord. And live by priorities. There are certain things that you have no business doing anymore. They're a waste of time. you need to live by priorities time is the most valuable thing you have use it wisely for your family for your children for the work of the Lord Father thank you for your goodness your grace and love we thank you for tonight and Lord I pray for every person here and over the internet that your hand be upon them Lord we thank you for your word. We thank you for Micah, just the scriptures, Lord, and just the benefit they are and how much they teach us. Lord, man never changes. He's always, always the same sinful and evil, rebellious. You are our only hope. And so, Lord, I pray for those that are here. If there's anyone who doesn't know you, you will speak to their hearts. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, And God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. He has allowed you to be here, to listen. And He has allowed you to know you're a sinner in need of a Savior. But He will not make that decision for you. You must make that decision because He forces no one to go to heaven or to go to hell. That is your choice. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ... But if you see yourself as a sinner, that's the grace of God. If you desire to call upon him, that's the grace of God. And he will honor you. He will forgive you. He will make a new creation of you and give to you eternal life. Not because you deserve it, just like I did not deserve it. but Because I believe what he said about himself, that he died in my place. He paid my sins on the cross. And then he rose from the dead to demonstrate the evidence of that payment. So if you don't know him, this is your prayer as you repent and ask him to forgive you. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you made that decision, there's a brother to my right, your left. Michael will see you there. He'd love to talk with you. He will um, give you a Bible absolutely free, share some important things for your growth. The next book we have is Nam.